0: Well, as uh, I guess most of you know, I'm not sure who all's been in here and who hasn't been in here in the last number of weeks, but um, Alicia and I and Joel and Kelly Teague did uh, have an opportunity to travel over to Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, we returned this, pa- uh, this past Wednesday evening. Is that when we got back? Yes. This past Wednesday evening um, after being there for about eight days. Um, I can tell you that uh, the Ndino family, Mark and Caroline and their children and Kyle and Maya Baker, send warm greetings to uh, this fellowship. Um, many of many of you know them or they know you and there are many that they don't know and you don't know them personally, but the affection and fondness for um, the fellowship of Faith Community Church and the support uh, that they uh, know and experience from this congregation is deeply felt and deeply appreciated, and so I would be remiss if I didn't just extend from them uh, gratitude and um, and just a, a sense of warm, uh, well, uh, warm greeting from them. Um, as they would, I certainly want to communicate that to you. We ha- we had a, a very uh, productive time, a great, kind of eye-opening time to. See where uh, Grace Community Bible Church of Kenya, or uh, Grace Community Bible Church of Nairobi, is at this point in time. There are certainly uh, great things that are going on. There are certainly challenges that they face, like any congregation. Um, and there are challenges that you can continue to pray for that we need wisdom on in how we continue to um, sort of shepherd this church plant along. We, we basically, this is our first sort of endeavor to send out uh, missionaries onto the mission field of our own accord. Uh, we obviously uh, support other missionaries, but we weren't the original sending entity. We weren't the original sending church. Uh, for example, of the Brackets or the, or the uh, I'm drawing a blank, the Mont- Montoyas or, or others who we support. Uh, we weren't the original sending church, but with the uh, Ndinos, And with the Bakers, we are the sending church. We are basically the mission agency uh, for this church plant and all that uh, that entails. And so we're continuing to sort of need to work through uh, all of the framework of that and making sure that we have uh, good oversight and good stewardship in that. So continue to pray for for us uh, and for our church and uh, just how this kind of unfolds uh, going forward. We had a great opportunity to... Uh, formally install Kyle Baker as a bit of an associate pastor of the church. He's been there for about seven months now, and they've been in language school and trying to gradually uh, acquire uh, Swahili. And uh, that's an ongoing effort, as you might imagine, uh, in terms of uh, immersion as well as uh, formal study. Uh, But, you know, for this period of time, they've been attending the church, but, you know, Kyle has had no formal role. It's been sort of like a little bit... uh, Uh, I don't want to say mysterious, but just sort of unknown. And so that was one of the things that we were able to do was to sort of meet with, uh, not that they don't have elders yet, uh, a group, a body of elders yet, but they have some men who have kind of risen to places of leadership, and uh, we had a chance to meet with them and talk about installing Kyle and what he would be doing. And so things like that are moving things along in a way that enable us to have, I think, uh, even better oversight and communication and, and uh, really stewarding that work. So anyway, just a summary, a lot, a lot more I could share. Uh, one thing I do want to share, though, is I had a very interesting conversation with Amos. Amos is the, the young man that leads worship at Grace Community Bible Church in Kenya. And it, this, was, um, <clears throat> this was at a, a break time uh, during, I believe, uh, the Saturday uh, seminars that we were having And um, we just had a a general conversation, and he was asking about things going on in the United States and and what have you. And uh, just imagine trying to explain to a young man in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, what's going on in our culture, in our society, in a way that wouldn't make sense to them, because it doesn't. I don't know if you, how many of you guys have seen the movie, uh, What is a Woman?, the documentary by Matt Walsh. Well, in that documentary, he actually travels to Kenya and goes out amongst the Maasai people and has these conversations with them about this whole sort of gender fluidity thing that we're kind of dealing with in our society, and they essentially laugh at him. Uh, the, the question is just, com- it's absurd, Like, it, like they express what is the truest kind of response you could have to such a line of questioning about can a man become a woman, can a woman become a man, and can they just kind of fiat declare it, and those kinds of things. And it's just absurd. It's just like it's laughable in their culture. Well, I was not out in, in the bush of the Maasai Mara like, like he was having these conversations with the Maasai people. I was at, uh, in, in a church break at a church seminar in you know the city of Nairobi and having a similar conversation, just ad hoc, and I literally said, yeah, and, you know, I was trying to kind of say we're dealing with these different cultural issues and these challenges and, you know, it's, you know, it's really around, centering around the the, the the life and ministry of the church and how, you know, what kind of things we're experiencing in society. And and I began to explain to him this whole matter of of transgenderism and that kind of thing and, you know, where, where you know, a man can decide to become a woman. And he just kind of stopped me and he was like, what? Like, I mean, he wanted me to explain to him. This is not some kind of, like, uninformed or uneducated guy. It's just not even on the radar over there. So that was a very interesting kind of experience for me because you kind of operate with this the, assu- with the, the assumption that this is just sort of like, you know, if we're experiencing it, then everybody's experiencing it or whatever. No, there's actually a level of sanity still existent in the world if you go to different places, so... Um, very interesting uh, conversation that made me, uh, again, uh, think about what we've been studying <clears throat> in First Corinthians chapter 11, because this is a chapter, as you all know, that deals primarily with, if not exclusively, with the distinctive roles of men and women in the life of the church and the home and the community, and how significant and important maintaining and displaying those distinctives are as part of the the manifestation of the assembled people of God in, in conveying the character and nature of God himself. That anything less than maintaining observable distinctives between men and women, in some way it brings shame or it diminishes the glory of God, particularly in the gathered assembly. Obviously, the context here is a little bit unique in terms of some of the the, the customs that are being uh, discussed. But nevertheless, that is the core thrust of this particular chapter. And it's just really timely for us as we're in a day and time, as I've already kind of alluded to, where that seems to be, um, you know, something that is completely thrown into utter chaos now. And and the the, the actual... The actual freedom to perpetuate such a chaos is the thing that's valued. You think about that. The, the, The privilege or the freedom, the autonomy, the individual authority that every person has by birthright to perpetuate absurd chaos as it relates to fundamental identity of male and female of man and woman that right to perpetuate that kind of chaos is what is valued not the values that are inherent in being man and the values inherent in being woman and those being held up as a way to reflect the created goodness creative goodness and glory of god this, the, when you really start unpacking what we're really experiencing, you can begin to see the darkness and light, sort of the, the sinister, demonic nature of what we're dealing with. It, it, is a, it is a masterful, complete turning things inside out and repositioning things in ways as though this is what's to be valued. This is what's to be prized. And any effort to diminish that right in a person's life to lay claim to be able to identify themselves any way they choose is to do violence against you and against your autonomy. It's quite an amazing demonic coup d'etat in our culture. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and continue our discussion of this as we try to kind of work our way toward a conclusion in the short term. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man." That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory." For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, quick review to kind of set things back in our in our minds the context of this and and the, the, the path that we've been on. Clearly, as I said, Paul is raising concerns here in this section that deal with the roles of men and women within the context of the gathered church for worship specifically. And he begins by stating what is a crucial principle that he wants us to understand. Verse 3 I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to understand, in other words, that headship and submission are innate defining characteristics of God's creative design. That are intended to ensure human flourishing and reflect his holy nature in the world and especially in the church. That's a long way of saying this is the principle that you need to understand. That headship and submission are the way God has made things. In creating man and woman the way he has made them. And then he begins to unpack that important principle that he wants the Corinthians and by extension he wants us to understand. And as we said... This is an offense to our modern sensibilities. We have to admit that the air that we breathe would kind of make us bristle at the ideas of headship and submission, really of any kind. I mean, we are somewhat of a revolutionary uh, lot, if you will, particularly as Americans. And and, uh, so it just kind of rubs against us even in a general way, but even more specifically, as we have uh, become, you might say, heirs of other types of social revolutionary movements we can't deny that we have sort of imbibed some of that, that ethos, and we, we contend to think in terms that this kind of explicit language of headship and authority uh, kind of makes us bristle a little bit, specifically when we think about it in the context of male and female relations. It's an inherently contentious issue as well, not just because of cultural or social dynamics, but because of the fall, and we talked about that. Like what we experience in terms of Male and female, man and woman contention goes back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It's not something that's new. It's not something that's just a cultural reality, but it is innate to us. And apart from the redeeming work of God, and apart from redeeming models that we can look to, then contention and discord is the order of the day. It's not something that we should be surprised at. that's why this particular text is so important for us to think about in terms of the redemptive work of God, the work of the gospel to make people and all things new as individuals gathered collectively as God's people, the body of Christ, work out their salvation with fear and trembling, are conformed to the image of Christ, are walking in the works of Christ that God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them, That these things begin to redeem, particularly in male and female relationships, what has been lost in the fall. And to begin to reorient the picture that people are seeing of these male and female relationships. You see this perfectly illustrated in the context of husband and wife relationships. Because the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 sets that up with crystal clarity. And talking about this role of headship and submission. But he then says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. Like, this is a picture. This is how you, you paint a beautiful picture to the world of Christ's relationship with his church. So these are eternal transcendent principles that we're talking about. They're not just sort of practical game plans for how you know, men and women can kind of get along together. We're talking about grand redemptive purposes here that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. And even in spite of it offending us in some way, or bristling against us in some way, or even in spite of the fact that we have to work through the latent effects of the fall that just sort of have these contentious elements within us, we need to recognize that we are called to something higher and better, and ultimately good. This is a principle that's easy to misunderstand, but it is straightforward in the reading of this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. It may not be easy to understand, but it's also not easy to miss. You cannot miss that the Apostle Paul is talking about headship and submission. It's not not an argument. It's just so straightforward. We've talked about this a number of times now from a number of different angles, that in order to adopt some other kind of interpretive position on this, you really have to do some pretty fancy hermeneutical or biblical interpretive gymnastics to make it all work. Because it's so straightforward. In fact, Paul's introduction here of the Trinitarian headship-submission relationship is sort of like the cornerstone of the argument. If he just mentioned, you know, man and woman and headship and submission and that kind of thing you might say well it depends on who you ask or we'll see about that or you know culture's change or times change or whatever but that's not what he does he 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 wraps up this important principle by by rolling in this dynamic between Christ and God and that submission and headship role that we'll talk about a little bit further we've talked about it briefly before but this is, this is a, a statement that what he is describing is that men and women, though equal in essence, though, though having common and shared value in, in essence, ontological essence, if you will, there is distinctiveness, intentional by design distinctiveness in role and in function that the goodness of God and the glory of God and the purpose of God is in fact put on display by those distinctions. Even though there is ontological or essential equality, essential essence of being that is is equal. And there doesn't have to be some kind of shift there, that those two things can exist together in the same way that they exist in the Godhead. Anyone that would argue for some essential distinction between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, meaning that somehow God the Father, in his essence, is superior to God the Son, and who, in his essence, is superior to God the Spirit, that is absolute heresy. That is not what Scripture teaches. And then you get into... A tri-theistic kind of theology instead of a one God in three persons understanding of the Trinity. I mean, we're going to talk about that next week a little bit. But you run into massive errors that the early church fathers grappled with and, and even people were excommunicated over because it's, it's, it's un, unadulterated heresy to go down that path. So the, the issue, this issue of essential essence, equality of essence, but distinctiveness of role is what is good And what is honorable and what pleases the Lord and what reflects his nature more vividly. That's the idea here. And as we've said before, the problem, the fundamental problem for us is not in God's design, but it's just in our unwillingness to submit to it. That's where we run into problems. God's design is good and perfect and wise. And our failure to submit to his design is where we run into problems. So we have this fundamental, essential principle, this crucial principle to understand, and then we have this customary practice to display, and this is where he gets into the head coverings thing in verses 4 to 6, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now this gets into the, sort of some of the unusual custom matters that the apostle Paul is dealing with in the first century there in Corinth. But what we what we without going into more detail on this, what we came to understand as we looked at this is that these innate and divine, divinely designed distinctions of men and women in their roles and their responsibilities should be demonstrated publicly and in customary ways that ensure clarity and diminish confusion and disorder. I mean, the whole frame here is that there is clarity, not confusion. And so in the demonstration of male and female roles in the context of the church, you want your customs and your practices in manifesting those distinctive roles to present clearly those distinctives in those distinctions between the two. That's the idea here. Some would argue that that it is appropriate even today for women to wear head coverings in the context of the gathered assembly and worship, or or if they're praying, or if they're teaching in some way, or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is that the principle is what carries forward, not so much the custom. And there are other customs, there are other customary ways that men and women maintain distinctiveness of maleness and femaleness. And there are also ways in which those lines can be openly blurred. The Apostle Paul would teach that you do not want to in any way blur those lines. And in particular, you don't want those blurred lines to be not a distinctive reflection of the people of God in Christ, but rather more a reflection of the world. And that was some of what was probably going on in the first century as well, is that the Apostle Paul was not only wanting to make sure that their outward customs reflected the distinctiveness between man and woman, head covering versus no head covering, but even possibly with the nature of what head coverings could have meant culturally, he didn't want there to be any confusion as to who they were as the people of God. We talked about that a little bit, about how there was... There was a form of first century feminism where women were kind of taking off their shawls, they were remo- removing their hair coverings, they were, they were wearing their hair unfurled, it was sort of a cultural way of, of sort of standing on their own and, and sort of separating themselves from any kind of male authority, uh, various things like that, and it's very similar to any kind of feminist ideology that we would know and understand in our day and time where you know, it's, a, it's this idea of re- releasing yourself from the, the oppressive shackles of a patriarchal, male-dominated kind of cultural environment. But it, it, it becomes a sinful thing to where it's like I'm, I'm standing on my own. It's more about autonomy. It's more about self-centered, self-gratifying autonomy. So that there was this per- push toward independence, toward, toward setting aside the responsibilities and even the privileges of home and family and that kind of thing. So that kind of thing was going on then as it goes on now, but there was also pagan worship practices that we talked about where men would wear head coverings as a part of their deference to a pagan idol, and, and women were also known in terms of the worship of, of Dionysus would, would have their hair uncovered and unfurled, and, and really it was this pursuit of of ecstasy and, and worshiping this God of really the God of wine and the god of ecstasy, Dionysius, excuse me Dionysus, I should say, and so these these exhibitions of pagan worship that primarily initially involved women was was kind of one of the things that could have been culturally going on that the Apostle Paul was trying to guard the Corinthians from having any association or affiliation with all that to say, and i 'm kind of rushing through this again, all that to say. The Apostle Paul here is trying to make sure that their outward customs, in this particular case, head coverings or no head coverings, would not, in one sense, blur the lines of distinction between these roles of men and women in the life of the church, and in another sense, associate them with something that was pagan or worldly, and thereby diminish the glory of God being demonstrated in their gathered worship. So these two sort of Ideas or motivations are likely in view here, and that's why you have such an emphasis on making sure that these customs, these outward displays, accurately accurately reflect the defined distinctives that God has created in men and women. We don't know all the particulars of this, and it's certainly not, not fair and not wise to be dogmatic on the specifics, but that kind of gives us at least a little bit of a framework to try to understand what might have been going on in that day and time. And so we want to make sure that we maintain distinctives, is the point, that are on display, that are part of our customs, the way that we attire ourselves. We, we, don't, we don't want to have those lines blurred. We don't want to have those things not reflective of what's actually transcendently true in our distinctives. Well, today... I want to take us now to this third principle, and that is a complementary purpose that we need to embrace. You have a crucial principle that we need to understand. You have a customary practice that we need to display. And now we have a complementary purpose that we need to embrace. And we see this in verses 7 to 12. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, we talked about this uh, a number of weeks ago. I gave you kind of just a working definition of the sort of the two primary uh, views of manhood and womanhood from a biblical perspective. We talked about the egalitarian view, which would be kind of like a biblical equality, like men and women are equal before God in both role and function and ontological essence, and in mutual image bearers and co-regents in the dominion mandate, and on and on it goes. So there is no uh, distinctiveness, if you will, of headship and submission or authority and submission between men and women, but we are, we are equal in, in the way that we are to work out manhood and womanhood from a biblical perspective. That is the egalitarian position. The complementarian position, or the complementarian view, which would be the view that we hold to here at Faith Community Church, would say that there are, obviously, there are distinctives, there are complementary roles and functions that are designed by God that we are to walk in that do involve Roles of authority and submission. And in this particular verse, these particular verses, I should say, that I just read, we actually see here some of the fundamental components of a complementarian view that are on display here. A complementarian view of manhood and womanhood are right here in these verses. And the first thing you see is that the distinction of role and function is rooted in In God's good design of men and women. In other words, this is not some archaic conception of men and women's roles that is rooted in a corrupt post fall patriarchy. It's not rooted in some first century cultural context where it's just confined there. But certainly, you know, we have we have progressed and we are much more enlightened now, and so we function differently. No, what you see from this passage and what the complementarian view understands to be true is that this distinctiveness of role and function is rooted in creation. It's not rooted in culture. And that's that's what the Apostle Paul is drawing out here. In verses 7 to 9, Paul is explaining why men should not diminish the glory of God by covering their heads, and why women should not diminish the glory of man by uncovering their heads. And he does this by drawing, not from culture, but drawing from the account of creation itself. So you can't argue that somehow this particular issue is confined to strictly some cultural milieu, some cultural context. It's not. It goes all the way back to pre-fall creation. That's an important distinction. Pre-fall creation. Where God made everything and he said it was good, it was very good. In other words, it was as it should be. That's the the frame that the Apostle Paul is laying this out in. It's not drawn from culture, it's drawn from creation. So notice in verse 7. You have this reference to the imago Dei, the image of God. This is a fundamental theological tenet of understanding who we are as created by God. That we are, as men and as women, created in the very image of God. And that's what he says there in verse 7, that reference to being created in the image of god Sorry, I'm in the wrong verse, wrong chat, wrong book here. For man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27. Listen to what that says. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens." and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In this little section, what you see here is that there is definitely co-regency, co-rulership of man and woman in this dominion mandate, of verse 26. And there is equal identification as image-bearers of God, as you see there in 26 and 27 but there is still a distinction a distinction of essential role and function in how these fundamental realities are worked out even in the flow of the language you see there there is distinction there's distinction that we need to understand and this this distinction becomes more obvious as the apostle paul moves forward in chapter 11 verses 8 and 9 and draws out references from the specific or more detailed account of man's creation in Genesis chapter 2. So you have verse 7, the reference to the fundamental, essential characteristic of man and woman being created in the image of God. And then in verse 8, you begin to see the order and method of creation that he draws from, referencing Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Listen to what that says. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Apostle Paul there says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And this is what he's referring to. There's something meaningful or significant or intentional by design, even in the order and method of how God made man and how God made woman. And any any view that would want to just sort of whitewash that or flatten that out, in my opinion, does great harm to the grandeur of God's created design and created purpose. Just as a, a biblical interpretive matter. How can you read a verse like that and even see that that there's poetry even used here? There's poetry coming off the pages of this this text. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's poetry. That's Hebrew poetry. To, To sort of express the beauty of what God is doing here. And yahoos from the 21st century want to come along and say, no, it's all the same. Flatten it out. It's a terrible thing to do to the the text of scripture. It's a terrible thing to do as well to the beauty of God's created design. So even getting into the order and method of creating man and woman and the way that he did it and the order that he did it the scripture takes great pains to elucidate that with distinctiveness. And we want to come along because we have some ridiculous notion of rights and and you know equalness and all that kind of thing, we'll say, nah, it's not that significant. Clearly, God could have created man and woman simultaneously. Right? I mean, is that sort of somehow out of the realm of God's fiat creative capacity to just say be man and woman, or, or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure what the right words are. and For obvious reasons, I'm not sure what the right words are. But But obviously, with God's power, creative power, if that would have been his intent and his design, he could have created man and woman simultaneously, and even in the same way. Or I suppose he could have... Created woman first and then created man out of woman, although that's kind of a bit of a nonsensical concept to just sort of flip the order, because you just end up in the same place. I mean it doesn't change anything, it's just a different different directional conflict, I guess. But that's not what he did. And this brings us to what we see in verse nine. In verse 9 he says, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And then verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This gets to the functional purpose of creation, of the creation of man and woman. This goes back to verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. This is purpose and intent for creating woman out of man and creating woman for man as a suitable, suitable helper. And just mind you, it is demonic, And of our own flesh, when we infuse into concepts of, for example, being a helper fit for him, as something of a less than quality. Since when do you find in the annals of scripture, helpfulness as being an ignoble quality, rather than a highlighted noble virtue? worthy of everyone's aspiration. Do you see how we have just completely perverted the beauty and wonder and virtue of God's created design because we take secular ideas about things of what it means to be a helper. I don't want to be a helper. Let him help me. What is that? That's not noble virtue. That's self-centered, demonic, pride, that's infusing something other than nobility and the virtue and worthiness of these kinds of attributes, in, in, infusing it with something that is less than, which, by the way, is the absolute work of the enemy himself all the time. That's, that's plan A all the time for Satan, to take God's good and beautiful design And corrupt it. And then convince us that God's good and beautiful and perfect design is a net result of something ignoble or less than. I reference you to Genesis chapter 3 and the conversation there. And you need go no further. That's the game plan over and over, over again. And it's the game plan that's been played out in this whole understanding of men's and women's roles created by God throughout Time in memoriam. God could have done this differently, but he didn't. He created by design man from woman, excuse me, woman from man, and woman for man as a suitable helper. Meaning that these distinctions have an innate quality to them and an intentional creative design purpose in them as well. That's why when we talked about this a number of weeks ago, about how does this kind of work itself out when you're not married? Because, I mean, you can think about it in the context of the marriage relationship, and you have other passages of Scripture we already referenced, one Ephesians chapter 5, where you can go to and you can say, okay, that kind of, I can get my hand around, I can kind of get my hands around that. I kind of work try to figure out how to work that out in the context of marriage. But what if you're not married? And, and I, I made the statement that because of this, it has to be worked out in some way even if you're not married. And to resist that, because somehow we live in the 21st century modern era of mobility and you know not, not arranged marriages and people being single longer and all these different sort of temporary cultural realities, that doesn't change what is transcendently true or creatively designed in us. It doesn't change any of that. How we specifically work these things out? We've got to kind of grapple with it a little bit. But nevertheless, we can't deny that it applies in some way. Not only do we see in these verses that the distinction of role and function is rooted in God's good design of men and women, but we also see that biblical headship and submission highlights the God-ordained beauty and order of male-female interdependency. I've kind of already been alluding to that. But look at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So lest any corrupt notions of male overlording authority, or subjugated, less than submission for women kind of come into play, The Apostle Paul raises up again this beauty and wonder of interdependency that is also innate in the created order of things. Man does not get to elevate himself as some kind of authority that says, I don't need a woman unless I decide I want a woman. The Apostle Paul is saying there is an innate, created, procreational interdependency that goes on and on and on and on. It's repeated over and over and over again. It's put on display for you to see time and time and time and time again. You are not autonomous from one another. This is not to work out in such a way that you have to be autonomous or separate or distinct from one another in such a way that you you find yourself going off into your own maleness or femaleness kind of corner to kind of claim or stake off your ground. The creative design of God for men and women is quite the opposite. It is intended to put on vivid display God's ordained beauty and order in this interdependency. That we are, we are dependent upon one another. All I can tell you is that you guys see this all the time, working itself out in these microcosm kinds of ways in some even kind of comical and maybe even slightly offensive, stereotypical kinds of ways. But just imagine. Imagine if you had a bunch of men who lived for a period of time without any female engagement, involvement, help, support, uh, hygiene, right? Right? Imagine what that environment would be like. You, you let that go for a lengthy period of time, and imagine the harshness, the crudeness, the lack of appropriate and Christ-like sensibilities that would be fostered if women were around. Imagine that. You could do the same for women. You could run this experiment with kids. Put a bunch of boys together together, In a room for a period of time without any girls around and see what emerges. You don't have to do or train anything. Watch what emerges. Do the same thing with a group of girls and watch what emerges. And what you find is something less than what God designed. There's a built-in innate interdependency. And what we're called to as God's people is not just to recognize that and to spend time together in the same rooms so that the guy's room doesn't smell bad or that the girl's room, whatever. I mean, but we're called as God's people with the mind of Christ, with the Word of God, and with the indwelling Spirit of God to bring about redemptive glory, and beauty, and wonder to the dynamic of this interdependency between men and women. And this doesn't happen because we sort of come together and say, well, what's your 50% and what's your 50%? I'll do my half and you do your half and maybe we'll kind of work it out and it'll be 100% at that point. No. God's good design is the same kind of headship and authority relationship role and responsibility, purpose and function that he even ascribed to himself in the Godhead. Such that we can understand by extension that redemption itself would not have happened if this kind of willing headship and submissive relationship did not play out according to God's plan and purpose. Remember we read from Philippians chapter 2 last time where Jesus himself did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what did he do? He humbled himself. He submitted himself. And he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. He became a servant and submitted himself to become a sacrifice for sin. This is the kind of headship and authority stewardship model, or, or I should say submissive, submission and authority model that the Apostle Paul is highlighting here. And it is one that is to put on display God's beauty in his created order, and in particular, an understanding that there is an interdependency that is constant and inescapable. So to somehow go down a path of of claiming autonomous, gender-specific rights is in a sense to deny the interdependency that we see repeated over and over again every time a child is born. And yet, isn't that what's happening in our culture? If you take the, the modern extreme notions of feminism, it doesn't just say, I want to claim rights for women. It says, we don't need men. Right? That's feminism. Feminism. And you've got the sort of the, the male dominant counterpart to it, the male sort of you know swearing off a of woman kind of thing, and they just become objects for some kind of gratification or whatever, or they go a different direction and pursue, you know, sensual lust in, in their own kind. That's what's happening in our culture today. It's not just that, you know, we're trying to claim our own rights. It's that we deny our need for the other. That's where this ends. It ends in a conflict based upon pure delusion. So, we need to realize that there's a complementary purpose that we have to embrace and embrace fully and gladly with joy. Well, quickly couple more things, and then I'm going to come back next time with uh, some other uh, closing thoughts. But we need to recognize that there is a natural conclusion to draw here. A natural conclusion to draw. Verses 13 to 15. He says, judge for yourselves. Now, I'm going to put it back into your court. Just think about this yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? In other words, is what I'm saying making any sense just from natural observation of things? Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, I'm not going to go into a long discussion of this particular section. Suffice it to say that this is just a reference to the reality that nature itself highlights these distinctions that can even be manifest in hair on a head. Since we're talking about head covering versus not head covering, let's just talk about the actual physical aspect of hair. And the reality is that there are physiological differences between men and women as it relates to hair. There are are observable physiological differences between men and women. We've made some jokes about that in the past, but Men, as they get older, they lose their capacity to maintain a full head of hair. That's the general trajectory. And women, because of actual genetics, there's hormonal realities to this that I could, I could reference, but there, are, there, are, there is a capacity for most women to maintain a fuller head of hair and, a, and, and the general uh, his, uh, cultural Historical reality is that women tend to have their hair adorned more fully than men. And so the Apostle Paul is sort of pointing in that day and time to this cultural reality. Women would wear their hair kind of all balled up on top in certain cases. And that was their, that was their covering. There was obviously cultural realities here too, we talked about before, that for a woman to wear her hair down and unfurled could be a cultural indication of her sort of availability and so for her to wear her hair like that, uncovered and unfurled, and be a married woman would be to say, I'm open to other prospects. But the idea here is that nature teaches us, even itself, that these distinctions point to customary differences that are on display. That there are natural things that point to the customs that I'm telling you to abide by that draw out these distinctions. There's a natural conclusion here that we can draw, he says. And then there's also a contentious attitude that we need to reject. He says in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Anyone that wants to sort of reject or resist this, kind of go your own way, you are out of line with the teaching of the apostles, with the doctrines of the church, And not only with just this particular local assembly, but with the other churches as well. In other words, this is something that is called upon for every New Testament believer in every local church. That these kinds of male and female distinctions, these customs that demonstrate what God has, by created design, put innately in us as distinctive of male and female, of headship and submission, that these things are to be manifest and any kind of rejection or resistance to it puts you and I at odds, not just with the Apostle Paul in his writing of this letter, he would say, but it puts you at odds with the broad instruction of the apostles in all the churches. So this is a, this is a major point of, of uh, teaching and instruction that the Apostle Paul is calling believers to consider and to submit themselves to. And of course, as we've talked about, Over and over again, this battle of the sexes, if you will, when that begins to manifest in the life of the church, there's probably nothing that would diminish the effectiveness of God's glory being on display in the life and worship of that church than when you have men and women not fulfilling their God-given roles and responsibilities in the life of the church. That is a recipe for confusion. It is a recipe for dissension. I can tell you that in these situations, men and women might be trying to adopt more progressive, more nuanced, more enlightened positions and roles. But inside, they are battling against creation itself. And so whether or not that conflict plays out time and time again, or whether it plays out when provoked, it does end up playing out. Because you're going against the way God actually made us and calls us to work these things out in the life of the church. Any kind of contentious attitude we must reject, it sets us at odds with the doctrines of the church and the practices of the churches. Now, got to wrap up, but next time I'm going to take up some of the sticky wickets, you might call them, in this section. We're going to talk a little bit about um, some of the Trinitarian uh, issues here, like um, there's, a, there's a, a teaching called Eternal Functional Subordination of the Son. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Trinitarian theology next week. I'm just going to kind of touch some of the highlights and kind of make sure we don't have any misunderstanding about the nature of Christ's submission to the Father. Um, there's also verse 5 where it says, Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And then in verse four, uh, chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, Paul then says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they were not permitted to speak. So you've got this potential conflict here. Can a woman pray or prophesy as long as she has her head covered? Or is Paul conflicting, contradicting himself by saying a woman should keep silent in the churches? We want to kind of do some reconciling work of that. And then verse ten. I'm going to spend like 30 seconds on because of the angels, because no one knows. I've read and read and read and read and read, and no one's landing the plane anywhere definitively. So, but I'll give you a few different ideas that uh, might be, you know, biblically rooted that could be uh, potentially helpful in understanding what this reference to because of the angels actually is. All right, time to go. Let's pray.